Last time we spoke about the romance between General Douglas MacArthur and Admiral Ernest King. Yes, the story of the United States Army and Navy getting along perfectly during the Pacific War without a single hitch and everyone worked together towards the same goals. No, it was a brutal war between the services, but in the end, more cool heads came to compromises and some reasonable war plans were made to take the Solomon Islands and commence a new phase for the New Guinea campaign. The Battle of Midway was still causing shockwaves to both sides of the Pacific War, and the war planners were scrambling to adjust themselves. Yet, while all of this is going on, as sadly more often than not, we tend to forget about the one nation who had been fighting the Japanese for the longest, that being China. The Doolittle Raid brought hell upon her, and that hell was nowhere close to being over. This episode is Unit 731 during Operation Sago. Welcome to the Pacific War Podcast, week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if you're still hungry after all that for some more Pacific War content, why don't you check my personal channel out, the Pacific War channel over at YouTube, where I have videos going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s, all the way up to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Similar to a previous episode, I want to give a disclaimer here that this episode is going to feature some very graphic, and I mean really graphic for the years anyways, material. In particular, we will be speaking about Unit 731. So for those of you who know about it, well, you know. And for those of you who don't, it's going to be some particularly gruesome stuff. That being said, I will leave all of that for the end half. The first part of this story will be about the withdrawal after Operation Sago. And there is some, well, well, not just some, a lot of horror involved in that, but uh, not as much as with Unit 731. So I will be saying another disclaimer before we get into that stuff. Just letting you know right at the beginning, folks. About a month ago, I spoke about the horrifying consequences that came after the Doolittle Raid. When Doolittle and his fellow air crews crash-landed all over eastern China, they brought Japanese fury upon the Chinese, the like of which had only been seen during situations like the Rape of Nanking. Japan unleashed Operation Sego, also known as the Zhejiang Jiangxi Campaign. The main objectives of Sego were to destroy the airfields at Li Shui, Zhizhou, in the Yushan area, and the city of Shanyang, which was the HQ of the Third War Area of General Gu Jutong. 
Basically, all the air bases in Zhejiang Tangzi had to be knocked out to prevent the Allies from using them to bomb Japan again. When the primary objectives of Operation Sago were complete, the IGA began its hunt for the American pilots responsible for the Doolittle Raid. Sadly, the generosity shown by the Chinese to the American pilots triggered a horrific retaliation by the Japanese that claimed an estimated quarter of a million lives. Even allowing for this number to be exaggerated somewhat, that is double the number of U.S. military deaths suffered during the entire Pacific War. The Japanese performed absolute barbarity upon the Chinese civilians and caused such devastation on the land that around 90% of the market towns and residential homes were destroyed in Zhejiang Jiangxi areas. In numerous cities, the streets would be left void, just ruins filled with burning homes. A missionary with the United Church of Canada named Reverend Bill Mitchell traveled the devastated region, organizing aid on behalf of the Church Committee on China Relief. Mitchell gathered statistics from local governments to provide a snapshot of the destruction. Here are some of those statistics. The Japanese flew 1,131 raids against Chuchou, Doolittle's intended destination killing 10,246 people and leaving another 27,456 destitute. They destroyed 62,146 homes, stole 7,620 heads of cattle, and burned 30% of all the crops. The very same committee went on to report this. Out of 28 market towns in that region, only three escaped devastation. The city of Yushan, with a population of 70,000, many of whom had participated in a parade led by the mayor in honor of raiders Davy Jones and Haas Wilder. This city saw 2,000 killed and 80% of their homes destroyed. Yushan was once a large town filled with better-than-average houses, now you can walk through street after street seeing nothing but ruins, Father Bill Stein wrote in a letter. In some places, you can go several miles without seeing a house that was not burnt. Unfortunately, the story was not over, as even more horror would come as the Japanese prepared to withdraw from the area. The Japanese decided to resort to biological warfare at this point in their campaign. Beginning in May, the Shanghai-based 13th Army marched west along the Zhejiang-Jiangsu Railway alongside forces from central and northern China. Part of the 11th Army moved east from Hankou at the same time. By late June, they had captured and destroyed the airfields at Yishui, Chuzhou, and Yushan thus completing the primary objectives of Operation Sago. The Japanese hoped that this would secure their home islands from any further air raids, but they still wanted to punish those responsible for the Doolittle Raid, be it the American pilots or the poor Chinese population that had aided them afterwards. During this horrifying period, the 13th Army occupied Shanyao, Yushan, Guangfeng, Shangshan, Zhuzhou, Langyou, Xinhua, Lishui, and the area around the Fuquan River. The 11th Army 
occupied Huanzhen, Nanchung, Yinchuan, and Xianhanzun. Yes, it's going to be one of those episodes where I will recommend getting a map out. And even if you do have a map of China, it's not going to help you too, too much because most of the places I'm naming have had their names changed actually quite a few times. Now, while the Japanese were unleashing this horror, it's not as if the Chinese were just sitting by idly. Lieutenant General Shigeru Sawada, commanding the 13th Army, had seemingly had an easy time pushing back the Chinese forces and repelling Chinese counterattacks on his western front. But he was plagued by guerrilla warfare in all the territories he occupied. This, of course, was nothing new to the Japanese. It was the classic defense strategy China had been waging for quite a while at this point. Bring the enemy past their logistical capabilities and begin harassing them. The 11th Army under Lieutenant General Kurichika Anami would end up facing the brunt of a large counteroffensive made by his longtime rival, General Xie Yue, and his 9th War Area Army. By May the 27th, the 11th Army had concentrated behind the Gongchang River. They then moved to the Wugui mountain area in preparation for the new offensive, and by the dusk of May the 31st, Anami ordered his forces to ford the Fuahua River. There, they clashed with the 100th Army, forcing them to retreat to a defensive position in Jinxian. Upon seeing the looming threat, General Shi Yue of the 9th War Area sent a force along the Gangjiang River to thwart the Japanese advance and give some relief to the other defenders. But by June the 3rd, the Japanese had already overwhelmed the defenders at Qinxian and were pushing as far as Yushanjin. Anami then sent the Iwanaga Detachment along the Jiejiangjiangxi Railway and the 34th Division to support the Takahara Detachment who were engaging with the Chinese 79th Army near Jiangpingjiang. On June the 4th, the Japanese were engaging the 79th Army at Yinchuan, where they managed to rout the enemy and capture the city shortly afterwards. Simultaneously, the Umai and Aida detachments engaged rear elements of the 79th Army just due west, tying them down long enough for the 34th Division and the Takahara Detachment to show up and completely annihilate the defenders. All of the escape routes for the 79th were severed, leaving them at the mercy of Anami's forces. With the 79th Army defeated, General Xie Yue decided to transfer the 4th and 58th Armies from Changsha to Luyang ordering them to recapture the lost position in Linchuan. During June, the Chinese forces managed to seize the heights just left of the Fuhe River, gradually moving in on Luchuan, while the Japanese waited for an opportunity to counter their thrust. By June the 25th, the 4th Army had settled itself on an exposed position south between Luchuan and Huanjian. So Anami decided that the time was ripe to commence an attack. Anami first sent the Takahara Detachment towards Chang'in to cut the enemy's escape routes off, while the 3rd Division and the Yamai Detachment put heavy pressure on the main Chinese position near Yihuang. By the end of June, the 4th Army had been completely routed, and its main strength was non-existent. The 58th Army was forced to begin a withdrawal from the Chang'an area, but soon was intercepted by the Japanese near the town of Xiaoaotou. The 58th Army would make a fighting withdrawal towards Xiangsu. By early July, the Chinese forces were battered and 
Bitterly defeated, many soldiers were forced to flee into mountains to escape the carnage. General Sawada then began an operation against the Chinese naval base at Wenzhou, where Allied submarines were coming to refuel and smuggle supplies to the countryside. General Sawada sent the Kazuno Mixed Brigade to hit Wenzhou, while the Nara Detachment would cover their rear from Li Shui. On July the 11th, the Kosono Mixed Brigade captured Wenzhou, with some support from the IGN, defeating Chinese guerrilla units along the way. After this, Sawada began another operation, this time against the last remaining Chinese base in Xiujiang, located at the town of Songyang. Sawada took the Nara Detachment at Li Shui and the Harada Mixed Brigade at Suichang and used them to execute a pincer attack against Songyang. On August the 3rd, the last Chinese base had been destroyed. Many of its war materials, including a hell of a lot of railway equipment, were pillaged. You know, it often has gone untalked about, but as everyone knows, the Japanese have an enormous resource issue, particularly with, you know, just things like scrap iron. And a lot of the China war was just them pillaging and stealing everything they could get their hands on. By mid-August, both Generals Sawada and Anami were content with the amount of destruction and looting they had unleashed, so they decided it was time for their final withdrawal from the region. There was also an ongoing major operation planned to hit Chongqing that both generals would need to take part of, so they definitely needed to get out of the area. Now, withdrawing from such a large-scale operation is no easy feat. General Sawada envisioned concentrating his units in the vicinity of Qizhou before making a large-scale withdrawal to Xinhua. From there, the 22nd Division would be left to garrison the area around Yui and Wuyi because it held very valuable materials like copper, tin, and fluorite that could be extracted. Like I said, a lot of this was the Japanese trying to get their hands on things that they didn't have. By August the 15th, the first Japanese units, the Kozuno Mixed Brigade, made its withdrawal towards Xiuzhou and managed to get out of the area by August the 25th. The next day, the final retreat towards Xinhua began, spearheaded by the 22nd and 32nd Divisions. And by the end of August, the 13th Army had made it all together to Xinhua. Suada then instructed the fortification of the area and ordered the 70th Division to cover its rear at Xiaoxing. Meanwhile, the 11th Army made its own withdrawal towards Nanchang, completing this by August the 27th. Now, what coincided with this grand withdrawal operation was the use of secret bacteriological warfare done by the infamous Unit 731. For those unaware, Unit 731, short for the Manchu Detachment 731, was a covert biological and chemical warfare research and development unit. Unit 731 often engaged in deadly human experiments and was responsible for some of the worst war crimes committed during World War II. They were sent into the region to execute land bacterial sabotage to prevent the Chinese from quickly reoccupying the territories the Japanese had just conquered. Basically, it was Japan's solution to delay the Chinese from rebuilding all those air bases they had just destroyed. So like I said at the very beginning of this episode, this is a disclaimer warning that there's going to be some stuff here that's very, very graphic. So you have been warned. Now, as some of you have might already guessed, I keep kind of falling on rakes, so as to say, with these podcasts. 
My real problem is I love, absolutely love giving extra information. Building further upon what occurs in the YouTube episodes for the Kings and Generals channel. In doing so, more often than not, I literally give away future episodes in the process. So, I had already dedicated a good chunk of a previous episode on Unit 731, that previous episode on Operation Sego. But in this episode, I am specifically supposed to be talking about Unit 731. Thus, I did my best to dig up a brand new source, a terribly, terribly gruesome one at that, and I will try to do my best to give a much fuller take on the horror show that is Unit 731, and to give additional information I hadn't before. So, this will not be just a rehashing of the same thing, that's what I'm trying to say. Also, for those who are interested, my new source is Unit 731 Testimony, Japan's Wartime Human Experimentation Program by Hal Gold. The book is literally built up of testimony from guards and participants and survivors of the whole ordeal. It's a difficult read. In all the wars up until the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, very fascinating war by the way, I strongly recommend checking out my episode on the Russo-Japanese War, not at Kings and Generals, mind you, but at the Pacific War Channel. Not to self-gloat, but I just wanted to point out that I don't think there is anybody on YouTube who has actually covered the Russo-Japanese War completely. Everybody simply covers one or two battles, like the legendary naval battle of Tushima, which uh, Kings and Generals did, or the siege of Port Arthur. Perhaps, maybe, the Battle of Mukden. But I really tried to cover it all. And in doing so, I actually kind of screwed up, mind you, and a lot of people have given me flack for it. I had to speed up the episode a bit, narration-wise, because there's just so much information to pack into it, and it would have been about 50 minutes long if I hadn't done that. And in retrospect, I probably should have just let it run on that long. But anyways, I think I'm the only YouTuber who actually tried to cover the entire thing, and it's a very fascinating war. I happen to be using fantastic footage from a Japanese TV series that had come out in the late 2000s. Really cool stuff, especially when it shows the uh, legendary battle of Tushima. So anyways, if you ever have a chance, check out the uh, Russo-Japanese War episode of my channel. It means a lot to me. But the reason I'm bringing up the Russo-Japanese War is, until it happened, wars had always, you know, they've always known about the silent enemy. Disease and how it took a greater toll of lives amongst the fighting men than did bullets. With the outbreak of the conflict with Russia, Japan would make history by resolving to learn from her mistakes. By the beginning of the 20th century, Japan scientists were making major discoveries such as figuring out the cause of beriberi disease and dysentery. Beriberi, by the way, was the main culprit that hurt the Japanese during the Russo-Japanese War. It's basically like a type of scurvy you get when you're eating just about only rice for long periods of time. The poor infantry in Manchuria suffered horrendously because of this. The Japanese discovered one strain of bacteria called the Shiga baculus, named after Dr. Shiga Kiyoshi, and the Western presses termed the Japanese as scientific fanatics. In all honesty, Japan's army had come to be one of, if not the world leader, in the field. To address the problem of ingesting bacteria with food, the IGA came up with a creosot pill, 
and told their soldiers to take one pellet after each meal. During a military meeting in Tokyo about the matter, one very young American lieutenant named Douglas MacArthur, and yeah, I somehow managed to sneak him into this one too, fresh out of West Point, was there as a military attaché to Japan. The meeting was about Japanese soldiers reluctant to take the pellets because they tasted like shit. MacArthur's opinion was that soldiers were soldiers and that there was no way to make soldiers of any nation follow orders like swallowing something they didn't like. One Japanese officer suggested having the tin cans that carried the pellets have a message written on them stating, It is the will of the emperor that each soldier takes this medicine after every meal. The result, as MacArthur recalled, was... The result was instantaneous. Not a pill was wasted. Nothing but death itself could stop the soldiers from taking the medicine. The Japanese success in minimalizing deaths from illness proved that they were correct in attaching equal priority to germs and bullets, and soon after the Russo-Japanese War was done, a Department of Field Disease and Prevention was established. One overseas American medical unit noted of the department, It was the most elaborate and effective system of sanitation ever practiced in war. Commendable as this all was, there was a darker side to it. The original bacteriological arms of Japan were soon to be warped in the direction of causing rather than preventing. Ishishiro was born June the 25th of 1892 in the village of Chiyoda, about two hours drive from central Tokyo. He was born into a wealthy family with respectable land holdings. In 1916, Ishii entered Kyoto Imperial University, a prestigious establishment with a medical department especially known for its work in, in bacteriology. As a student, Ishii seemed to have a personality problem. He was quite pushy, inconsiderate, and very selfish. Ishii also felt a calling to the military, and after graduating in 1920, he enlisted in the IGA. He was commissioned as a lieutenant, and by 1922 managed to gain a transfer to the First Army Hospital in Tokyo. His fever for research was highly appreciated by his superiors, and by 1924 he was assigned to do his alma mater for the postgraduate work in bacteriology. Ishii eventually married the daughter of one of the top men at Kyoto University, cementing his position within the university's medical research facilities. Japan was a signatory to the Geneva Convention of 1925, which prohibited biological and chemical warfare. As a specialist in bacteria-related fields, Ishii found this to be encouraging. Surprising, huh? He found this to be encouraging because he reasoned that if something was bad enough to be banned, then it most certainly must be effective. Ishii pressed for the establishment of a military arm whose activities centered around weapons based on biology. For the military, it was a no-brainer. Compared to the costs of conventional forces, bacteria and gas were far less expensive. Protecting one's troops was also still part of the thinking about all of this. In fact, Ishii was dispatched to help cure an epidemic that broke out in a region of Japan 
and he ended up developing a water filtration system that could be transported along with troops. In 1928, Ishii went on a two-year tour of Canada, the United States, and Europe. He researched the history of gas weapons during World War I, and he studied what other countries were currently doing in the fields of bacteriological and gas warfare. When he returned to Japan in 1930, nationalism had really begun to take foot in the nation, in new and startling ways. This is, of course, the beginning of the period for Japan a lot of us call government by assassination. Tokyo began to be enamored with Ishii's ideas and then bang, the Manchurian incident occurred in 1931. The invasion of Manchuria resulted in the establishment of the puppet state of Manchukuo, setting up a perfect place to grab human specimens for a biolab. As Japan continued to spread into mainland Asia, Ishii's career advanced. In 1932, an epidemic prevention research laboratory was set up within the army hospital in Tokyo, with Ishii in charge of it. The center of the work was disease prevention, but this soon shifted towards the development of bacteriological and chemical warfare. Soon, Ishii's research required animals, but this did not satisfy their needs wholly. What they really needed was human subjects. Towards the end of 1932, Ishii applied to the army to be sent to Manchuria to expand his research facilities. The following year, Ishii's aggressive push for biological warfare research resulted in a grant of land and a building in Tokyo for his research. By pure coincidence, Japan withdrew from the League of Nations that same year, and thus the gloves were taken off. Another group that was growing steadily at this time was the Kempeitai, the elite military police of Japan. Because of their occupation of Manchuria, the Kempeitai had a lot of work laid out for them with the local populace. Anyone who resisted Japan, particularly underground groups, could expect visits from the Kempeitai, and if they were bad enough, they might find themselves captured and sent to experimental labs of horror. The Kempeitai were given orders from the army to help procure human subjects for what would become known as Unit 731. Former Kempeitai officer Dailin Mio Yukutaka gave testimony later in life. We were the special handling forces of the Kempeitai, in charge of taking prisoners for the experiments of 731. We knew the prisoners would be used in experiments and not come back. We tied them up with ropes around their waists and their hands behind their backs. They couldn't move. We took them by train in a closed car. Then the unit 731 truck would meet us at the station. It was strange, this truck. Black, with no windows. A strange looking vehicle. The site of horror was in the city of Habin. It was a railroad hub a multicultural and multiracial center of commerce, art, and music. It had been developed by the Russians a few years before the Russo-Japanese War. Many white Russians fled Russia and stayed in Habin. And I guess I have to say this, by white Russians I mean those who weren't sympathetic to the new Soviet Union. By 1932, as the Japanese Empire expanded, Ishii and his associates followed with them everywhere they went. 
There was a ton of fear that the Soviet Union would crash down on Manchuria, and Ishii planned to develop a means to stop them if they tried. Ishii's operation started out in Habin with a few hundred men. To maintain their facade of respectability, they had the Harbin facility concentrate on socially acceptable areas, such as vaccines and other proper medical research. Meanwhile, they kept the work they wanted to be quiet in another place about a hundred kilometers to the south. They descended upon an area known as Beiyinhe, where there was around 300 homes and shops. The army forced everyone out as Ishii's team moved in. There was a large building with around 100 rooms kept for quarters, while facilities were being built up. An area of 500 square meters was designated as a restricted military zone. Everything was veiled in secrecy. The main facility became known as the Jongma Fortress. The Japanese told all the locals it was merely a prison. By 1936, the Chinese knew very well it was not merely just a prison. Instead, they knew it was a production facility for bacteria and a slaughterhouse. Rumors began to spread of people having their blood drawn from there. These rumors proved true. Prisoners were being subjected to blood tests. At least 500 cubic centimeters were drawn at 2 to 3 intervals per day from victims. The victims became progressively debilitated and wasted away. Some tests were simply to see how much blood could be squeezed out of a person before they died. Other tests involved poison. It is said the life expectancy in the fortress was under a single month. One of the experiments was to see how long a person could survive on just water. Food was withheld from prisoners, and some were given ordinary water, while others were given distilled water. They were observed as they all slowly died. There was a rather incredible prison outbreak orchestrated by a Chinese man named Li. Li and his fellow prisoners managed to get their shackles off one night, hit the guards over the head, and broke out. Unfortunately for them, they were all subjects to the blood tests. Thus, they were quite weak. Over 10 of them trying to escape were gunned down by machine guns, but 20 made it outside, where a lot were recaptured and killed. But just a few men made it to a local village and sought help from the locals. The jig was up. The fortress secret had gotten out. A new site was located much closer to the city of Harbin, a short hop away on the South Manchurian Railway. It was called Pingfang by the Chinese and Heibo by the Japanese. Between 1936 and 1938, a series of villages near Pingfang were seized by Ishii's group. Hundreds of families were forced to sell their homes and land for paltry sums of money. Surrounding buildings in Pingfang were limited to one story, and the airspace was off-limits to any other aircraft other than the IGA. A complex was built consisting of 70 buildings, and this was all completed by 1939. When the locals asked about all of this, the Japanese told them it was a lumber mill. One of the researchers for Unit 731 would make a joke. 
It is a lumber mill, and the people are the logs. That joke would lead to the Japanese using the term for log, maruta, to identify prisoners whose last days were being spent either torn apart or gassed to death in experiments in the facilities. Pingfeng was equipped for disposing the evidence of their work in three large incinerators. As a former member who worked with the incinerator teams recalled, The bodies always burned up fast because all of the organs were gone. The bodies were empty. Human experimentation allowed the researchers their first chance to actually examine the organs of a living person as a disease progressed in them. And yes, you heard that right, a living person, because a lot of the vivisections were done on live people. As one former research explained, the results of the effects of an infection cannot be obtained accurately once the person dies because putrefactive bacteria sets in. Putrefactive bacteria are stronger than plague germs, so for obtaining accurate results, it is important whether the subject is alive or not. Another former research had this to say. As soon as the symptoms were observed, the prisoner was taken from his cell and into the dissection room. He was stripped and placed on the table, screaming, trying to fight back. He was strapped down, still screaming frightfully. One of the doctors stuffed a towel into his mouth. Then, with one quick slice of the scalpel, he was opened up. Witnesses of some of these vivisections reported that victims usually let out horrible screams when the initial cuts were made, but that the voice stops soon after. The researchers often removed the organ of interest, leaving others in the body, and the victims usually died of blood loss or because of the organ they just removed. It goes without saying there was no anesthetics being used because it would contaminate the experiments. These people felt everything done to them. There are some accounts of experiments being carried out on mothers and children. Because, yes, children were in fact born in these facilities. Many human specimens were placed in jars to be viewed by Tokyo's Army Medical College. Sometimes these jars were filled with limbs or organs, but there apparently were some giant jars that had entire bodies in them. In addition to the central units at Pingfang, were others set up in Beijing, Nanjing, Guangzhou, and Singapore. And of course, there was numerous, numerous other units all over the China area. The total number of personnel was apparently 20,000. These satellite facilities all had their own unique horror stories. One was located in Anda, 100 kilometers from Pingfang, where outdoor tests for plague, cholera, and other pathogens were done. They would expose human subjects to biological bombs, typically by putting 10 to 40 people in the path of a biological weapon. A lot of the research was done to see the effective radius of the bombs, so victims were placed at different distances. At Xinjing was Unit 100, 
Its research was done against domesticated animals, horses in particular. Unit 100 was a bacteria factory producing glanders, anthrax, and other pathogens. They often ran tests by mixing poisons with food and studied its effects on animals, but they also researched chemical warfare against crops. At Guangzhou was Unit 8604, with its HQ at the Zhongshan Medical University. It is believed starvation tests ran there, such as the water test I had mentioned previously. They also performed typhoid tests and bred rats to spread plague. Witness testimony from a Chinese volunteer states they often would dissolve the bodies of their victims in acid. In Beijing was Unit 1855, which was a combination of a prison camp and an experiment center. They ran plague, cholera, and typhus tests. Prisoners were forced to ingest mixtures of germs, and then they tested different vaccinations on them. In Singapore, after its capture in February of 1942, there was a secret laboratory made. One Mr. Othman Wok gave testimony in the 1990s that he was about 17 years old when he was employed to work at this secret laboratory. He reported that seven Chinese, Indian, and Malay boys worked in the lab picking fleas from rats and placing them in containers. Some 40 rat catchers would haul rats to the lab for the boys to do their work. The containers with fleas went to Japanese researchers and Othman says he saw rats being injected with plague pathogens. The fleas were transferred to kerosene cans, which contained dried horse blood and an unidentified chemical. They would be left to breed for weeks. Once they had plague-infested fleas in large quantity, Othman recalled, A driver who drove the trucks which transported the fleas to the railway station said that these bottles of fleas were sent off to Thailand. Why this quote is particularly interesting is because if it is true, it finally gives evidence to claims that Unit 731 had a secret branch in Thailand as well. Othman stated he never understood or knew what was really going on at the lab, but when he read in 1944 about biological attacks on Chongqing using fleas, he decided to leave the lab. Othman states the unit was called Unit 9240. As you can imagine, rats and insects played a large role in all of these tests. They harvested the Manchurian rat population and enlisted school children to raise them. In the 1990s, the Asahi Broadcasting Company made a documentary titled The Mystery of the Rats That Went to the Continent. This documentary involved a small group of high school children in Sayatama Prefecture, asking local farmers if they knew anything about rat farming during the war years. Many of the farmers interviewed simply stated that everybody back then was raising rats, and it was a major source of income. One family said that they had rat cages piled up in a shed. Each cage could carry up to six rats but that they had no idea what the rats were being used for. Now, hear this. After the war, the United States military kept these same families that were breeding all the rats in business. The United States Army, Unit 406, which was established in Tokyo to research viruses, wink wink, 
would often drive out to see these farms in their American jeeps collecting rats. So, if you are thinking something like Project Paperclip, yes, it really is that kind of situation. It's exactly what you think. Getting fleas was a very tricky task. One method was taking older Chinese prisoners and quarantining them with clothes carrying fleas or flea eggs upon them, and then letting them live in isolated rooms to cultivate more fleas. These poor guys had to live in their own filth and not shave for weeks to produce around 100 fleas a day. Now, Unit 731 dealt with numerous diseases such as cholera. Some experiments used dogs to spread cholera to villages. They would steal dogs from a local village, feed them pork laced with the cholera germs, and then return them to that said village. When the disease finished incubating, the dogs would usually vomit, and other dogs would come and eat that said vomit, spreading it more and more. The dogs were usually also stricken with diarrhea, and the feces would just spread it from dog to dog. Around 20% of the people in these villages hit by the disease would die. Former Army Captain Kojima Takio was a unit member involved in a cholera campaign, and he added this to his testimony. We were told that we were going out on a cholera campaign, and we were all given inoculations against cholera 10 days before starting out. Our objective was to infect all the people in the area. The disease had already developed before we got there, and as we moved into the village, everyone scattered. The only ones left were those who were too sick to move. The number of people coming down with the disease kept increasing. Cholera produces a face like a skeleton, vomiting, and diarrhea. The vomiting and defecating of the people lying sick brought flies swarming all around. One after another, people died. I've mentioned it quite a lot. Plague. It was the staple of Unit 731. The IGA wanted a disease that was fast and fatal. Cholera, for instance, took about 20 days to kill a person. Plague, on the other hand, that starts killing people just in three days. Plague also has a very long history of use going as far back as medieval times. It was one of the very first diseases Ishii focused on. In October of 1940, a plague attack was conducted against the Kaimingjie area in the port city of Ningbo. This was a joint operation with Unit 731 and the Nanjing-based Unit 1644. During this operation, plague germs were mixed with wheat, corn, cloth scraps, and cotton, dropped from the air. More than 100 people died within just a few days of the attack, and the affected area was sealed off from the public until the 1960s. One of the most horrifying experiments were the frostbite experiments. Army engineer Hisato Yoshimura conducted these types of experiments by taking prisoners outside, dipping various appendages in water of varying temperatures and allowing the limbs to freeze. Once frozen, Yoshimura would strike their affected limbs with a short stick, and in his words, he recalled, They would emit a sound resembling that which a board gives when it is struck. Ice was then chipped away from the affected area as the subjects were treated with various ailments, some being doused in water, exposed to heat, and so on. 
Members of Unit 731 referred to Yoshimura as the, quote, scientific devil and as a cold-blooded animal because he would conduct his work with strictness. Naoji Uzuno, another member of Unit 731, described in a 1980s interview a disgusting scene where Yoshimura had, quote, he placed two naked men in an area 40 to 50 degrees below zero, and researchers filmed the whole process until the subjects died. The subjects suffered such agony that they were digging their nails into each other's flesh. Yoshimura's lack of any remorse was evident in an article he would write later on after the war for the Journal of Japanese Physiology in 1950 where he admitted to using 20 children and a three-day-old infant in experiments which exposed them to zero degrees Celsius ice and salt water. The article drew criticism, and no shit, but Yoshimura denied any guilt when contacted by a reporter from the Menachi Shimbun. Yoshimura developed a resistance index of frostbite based on the mean temperature of 5 to 30 minutes after immersion in freezing water, the temperature of the first rise after immersion, and the time until the temperature first rises after immersion. In a number of separate experiments, he determined how these parameters depended on the time of day a victim's body part was immersed in freezing water, the surrounding temperature and humidity during the immersion, how the victim had been treated before the immersion, for example, after keeping awake for a night, after being hungry for 24 hours, or hungry for 48 hours, or immediately after a heavy meal, immediately after a hot meal, immediately after muscular exercise, or a cold bath, or a hot bath. Even what type of food was given to the victim was tested, or whether they had been fed five days preceding the immersions with regard to such dietary nutrition intakes. He would jot down if it was high protein intake from animal, high protein from vegetable, low protein intake, a standard diet, if there was a lot of salt in their diets, and so on. He was meticulous. Members of Unit 731 also worked with syphilis, where they orchestrated forced sex acts between infected and non-infected prisoners to transmit the disease. One testimony given by a prison guard was as follows. Infection of venereal disease by injection was abandoned, and the researchers started forcing the prisoners into sexual acts with each other. Four or five unit members dressed in white laboratory clothing, completely covering the body with only the eyes and mouth visible, rest covered, handled the tests. A male and female, one infected with syphilis, would be brought together in a cell and forced into sex with each other. It was made clear that anyone resisting would be shot. After victims were infected, they would be vivisected at different stages of infection so that the internal and external organs could be observed as the disease progressed. Testimony from multiple guards blamed the female victims as being hosts of these diseases even as they were forcibly injected. Genitals of female prisoners were infected with syphilis, and the guards often would call them jam-filled buns. Even some children would be born and grow up within the walls of Unit 731, infected with syphilis.
One researcher recalled, One was a Chinese woman holding an infant. One was a white Russian woman with a daughter of four or five years of age. And the last was a white Russian woman with a boy of about six or seven. The children of these women were tested in ways similar to the adults. There was also, of course, a lot of rape and forced pregnancies, as you could imagine. Female prisoners were forced to become pregnant for the use of experiments. The hypothetical possibility of transmission from mother to child for certain diseases, particularly syphilis, was the rationale for these experiments. Fetal survival and damage to the woman's reproductive organs were objects of interest. A large number of babies were born in captivity, and there have been no accounts of any survivors of Unit 731, children included. It is suspected that the children of the female prisoners were killed after birth or aborted. One guard gave a testimony. One of the former researchers I located told me that one day he had a human experiment scheduled, but there was still time to kill. So he and another unit member took the keys to the cells and opened one that housed a Chinese woman. One of the unit members raped her. The other member took the keys and opened up another cell. There was a Chinese woman in there who had been used in a frostbite experiment. She had several fingers missing and her bones were black with gangrene set in. He was about to rape her anyway. Then he saw that her sex organ was festering, with pus oozing to the surface. He gave up the idea, left, and locked the door, then later went on his experimental work. Now, getting back to the withdrawal of Zhejiang Jiangxi, the Pingfang base of Unit 731 would evoke the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. To accompany the withdrawal of the 11th and 13th armies, Ishii and Unit 731 prepared to conduct a bacteriological attack over Zhejiang. They would be airdropping ceramic bombs. Ishii and his team decided to employ plague, anthrax, cholera, typhoid, and paratyphoid. Almost 300 pounds of anthrax and paratyphoid would be used during this operation alone. They distributed peptum bottles labeled water supply to Nanking, where the bacteria would be transferred to metal flasks. In order to support the airdrops, IGA forces would contaminate wells, rivers, and fields using these flasks, hoping to sicken the local populace and guerrilla units. Furthermore, the Japanese prepared 3,000 rolls contaminated with typhoid and paratyphoid, and then handed them over to Chinese prisoners of war, subsequently releasing them to go home and spread the disease. Another horrific tactic employed by the Japanese was to deposit biscuits infected with typhoid near fences and behind trees to make it look like retreating soldiers had left them behind, knowing full well that hungry inhabitants would devour them without a doubt. By August the 1st, the success of the bacteriological operation was immense and Ishii was promoted to division head of the army surgeon in the 1st Division, subordinated to the North China Area Army. To replace his former position as head of Unit 731 was Major General Kitano Masaji, 
and under his tenure, it would reach the apex of large-scale production and development of bacteriological warfare to unleash even more horror. The success of Unit 731 would soon get completely out of hand for the Japanese. By December of 1942, a massive outbreak of cholera was reported by Tokyo Radio, and not too long after, the Chinese government began quarantining the province of Zhejiang due to the epidemic. Many retreating IGA forces also got sick with the diseases spread by Unit 731, with losses amounting to more than 1,700 men by their own biological weapons that had turned on them. This was a terrible price the Chinese paid for the Doolittle Raid. Entire villages looted, burnt, pillaged, their women raped, men tortured, children slaughtered, their land and entire ecosystem poisoned. And on top of all of this, the horrors unleashed by Unit 731. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if you're still hungry after all that for some more Pacific War content, please go check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Check it out, it'll mean a lot to me. Oh boy, another rather grim and horrifying episode. Yes, Unit 731 and its affiliated units were probably the grand champions of evil. Hell, they definitely give the Einsatzgruppen a run for their money. China suffered tremendously from these sick and twisted groups. And sadly, after the war, many involved in that disgusting work would find more work in the sector of biological warfare, working for people like the Americans. What started in the beginning as prevention soon became the facilitation of death. 